Welcome to the Beltway Outsiders Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn. I'm a lawyer, columnist for the Conservative Institute, and a contributor in very many places where I cover everything from politics, law, and culture. I send out a Friday newsletter each week full of political analysis and the best articles I've seen that week. You can sign up and get all of my columns, articles, and podcasts delivered right to your inbox each week by going to thebeltwayoutsiders.com and clicking on the sign-up link, or you can use the links in the show notes, which are available at any time by clicking on them for this or any episode. Episode. And finally, if you like what you hear here, please make sure to subscribe and leave a review. If you listen on the website, that's great, but it'd be better for the show if you went to iTunes, Google Play, Amazon Music, or wherever you're getting those podcasts and leave a review. Those five-star ratings help new listeners and readers like you find us, and I always look forward to reading them. And if you can't leave a review, as always, sharing the podcast with others is just generally how we grow anyway, and I always appreciate everyone who reached out to tell me that they shared the podcast or, you know, they heard it from a friend from a friend, anything like that. Those always great to hear. And I'm grateful for you guys sharing it among your friends. So for this week's show, in the first segment, we're going to talk about the the current political environment or fundamentals in the country and what they mean for the midterms coming up in 2022, as well as for the next presidential race. Uh, we're doing this because I, I came across two articles this past week that I wanted to cover uh, from two of the best and, and elite election analyst out there. The first is Sean Trenday, and the second is Josh Crashauer over at National Journal. They raise some really good points that's worth touching and hitting on because they sort of go along with each other. Uh, and so I, I want to kind of sort of cover that ground here. I think it kind of help, should help focus what you should look at as you're watching both the midterms come up and watch everyone sort of jockeying around that. And then more long-term what are going to be the different forces that are playing out in both the Republican and Democratic parties as we head into the next presidential election. So that's what we're going to cover in the first segment. In the second segment, we'll do our, our usual COVID-19 update, going through all the numbers as we're, we go into the July 4th weekend. And then the light item segment for this week is a special message from a former president. Um, we've got a, a, a brief message that uh, former President Ronald Reagan recorded on why he liked July 4th. I figured that was a pretty good message for next weekend as we head into that because we'll be doing a show next weekend because of, of the holidays. Sort of been a, a, an odd lineup here with all the holidays falling on, on weekends that have prevented me from recording, but that's how it lays out, so that's what we're, we're doing. So no show this next week, so we're going to get you teed up and ready for July 4th by giving you and sending you out on a message from Ronald Reagan. I think that's a pretty good way to do that. So that is the agenda for this week's show, and we'll jump right in. So as I said, the first thing I want to cover here is this was a, a, a cover, I guess a cover column or cover essay in the Washington Examiner magazine. Uh, they had uh, elections analyst from Real Clear Politics, Sean Trendy, write about the 2020 election. His the title of it was Trump without Trump or Trumpism without Trump. Basically, looking at the Republican Party moving forward without Trump in the mix, and looking at the data and what's happening in these elections and what it says about a post-Trump future. I know everyone thinks he's going to run again. I generally think he is too, but there are trends beneath you know, Trumpism that are worth ferreting out here and sort of thinking about moving forward. Some of the things that, that Trump did in his 2016 electoral win is accelerate trends that were already happening before him. And so what you want to do is not just look at this as, well, this was just trade data about Trump. You need to look at it and say, okay, what were the trend lines before? 
what are the turn lights during and what can we project forward because that's really what could potentially happen in 2022 and 2024. And I really like Sean Trendy on this. He's just flat out, I think, the best elections analyst out there, bar none. I don't think anyone else comes close to him. It takes the combined might of 538 with all their stuff to even come close to one Sean Trendy. I I literally don't know anyone who's as good as him on this stuff. And just thinking through what are the various possibilities in an election and what you need to look at. He, he wrote a book back in 2011 or 2012 called The Lost Majority. And the data and the points that he made in that book basically predicted every beat of the 2016 election. And it's that's important because what he was saying could happen in an election was the opposite of what everyone else was saying. At the time, what was supreme in the Obama-Romney election was what's called the emerging Democratic majority. And I've talked about this and I've written about this some in the past, but essentially Democrats believed that over time they were going to have an impenetrable version of a majority that Republicans would just basically be made a rump party. And Trendy Trendy pushed back against this, and and he ended up being right. And I think everyone's come around to the fact that he was right. And so now you need to sort of look at what he's thinking about now. So what he does in this cover article in the Washington Examiner, he starts out by pointing out that the conventional wisdom about the 2020 election is mostly wrong. And this is especially espoused by people like Joe Biden, some of the more prominent never-Trump talking heads in the media. What they typically say is that Trump and Trumpism suggest that the Republican Party is shrinking and fractured and destined for failure. And this is just flat wrong. There's, there's, this is a narrative. It's not actually supported by any real evidence. Because if you look at 2020 and you look at some of the other elections, the Republican Party was only a few thousand votes away from winning the White House, Senate, and House again under Trump. There, there's a very real scenario where you have Trump having all three branches of government in 16 and 20. Very real possibility. Um, there were only a few thousand votes from accomplishing that. Obviously, Democrats are going to walk away with the trifecta, but it's a very small margin there. Everyone points at that popular vote, which has become a big talking point in the media, but that, if you know elections, you know that's meaningless. The margins we're talking about here are very, very small. And how the margins are changing is telling us a little bit what's happening here, too. Because what Sean points out in his piece, he, he points out, you know, Republicans were very close in winning all three branches of government here, and that's despite having literally everything go wrong. You had the pandemic raging, which tanked the economy. You're talking about in, you know, the second quarter GDP report, which is usually, if you want to predict an election, you look in the election year what happened in the second quarter of your, your GDP report, because that typically gives you a good idea of what people are going to be thinking about the economy as they go into the voting booth. In 2020, that reading was negative 33%. It was historically bad. And obviously, by the time the election came around, we were digging our way out of that. But that's just an astronomically number there. Negative 33%. Unheard of in one quarter. You have that. You have the race riots. You have everything happening, you know, along with Trump, just everything he does along the side. And then you had the Republicans outside of that were being outspent across the board in every key race out there. So you add all that together, Republicans had everything working against them, and they still were close to pulling it off. Every factor was against the GOP in 2020, and you still had that narrow margin there. 
So what Sean Drendy concludes is he, he follow you know after going through all that election history that I just covered there, he says the following. I marched through this, meaning the election history we just covered, I marched through this not simply to relive the 2020 election, but rather to point out what should be obvious. Republicans had almost everything going against them, yet Democrats basically had to win three coin flips to get their trifecta. This was an election that easily could have gone to Republicans. This is to say, if there is a big lesson to be learned from 2020, it is probably not that Trumpism has divided, disrupted, and dispirited the party of Abraham Lincoln. Eliminating the, quote, Trump destroyed the GOP lesson is an important step in figuring out what 2020 was about. But another conclusion seems to flow from this, which is perhaps uncomfortable for those who have been appalled by much of the past four years. And that is this. The appeal of Trump and Trumpism, to the extent those are different phenomena, are genuine. Moreover, among some groups that appeal, that appeal expanded from 2016 to 2020. So what you have, you know, you know, if you go back in time and you look at the autopsy that Republicans ran in 2012, they had a very clear mandate. They needed to grow the party because Mitt Romney really only he only appealed to white college educated voters, and that was basically it. If you were outside that, Mitt Romney didn't have much appeal to you. So without that appeal. You have to think about how to expand the party. Well, the irony is is that everyone ignored that lesson with Romney, ignoring the fact that you had a very narrow band of voters with him, while saying that that was what was true about Trump, when in reality the opposite was true. Trump expanded the party. So the way that Trendy proves this point is he looks to one key group here, and that's Hispanics. And he talks, you know, you, you hear everyone talk about, you know, white working class voters and why they are important to Trump's win, and that was written about ad nauseum for four or five years there. But that's not going far enough into data, and it's not what the most important shift was in the 2020 election. So I'm going to let him explain here. So this is what he said in his article. He said, More interesting for 2020 purposes is Trump's performance among Hispanics. This fast-growing segment of the electorate formed a bedrock of the emerging Democratic majority theory, which posits in part that as the Hispanic population share of the electorate grew by a steady 1-2% to a year, the Republican vote share would decline over time, translating into a Democratic advantage. There are many problems with the theory overall, but a Republican candidate scoring well into the 30% or more among Hispanics is a particularly large problem for it. More important, a candidate like Trump achieving one of the highest Republican vote shares in the past 50 years represents a challenge to much of the policy analysis about this group. So what he's getting at here is that the assumption for the last several decades among Democrats is that as the country became more diverse on a racial basis, specifically as we allowed and, became, and had more Hispanics in the country, they believed that their coalition would be ascendant and impenetrable, that as Hispanic voters came in, they would automatically vote Democrat and they would never change. They believed all Hispanics, blacks, and new immigrants would mean more voters for them. That's what they meant by the emerging Democratic majority. And if any minority group doesn't vote this way, it severely undermines that theory. You're taking out, basically, you, you have your, your a three-legged stool here, where you have Hispanics, blacks, and white college-educated voters. They also talk about building a coalition with white um, non-college-educated voters, 
at being sprinkled in too. But in reality, that was your that was really what you were planning on building on. Some coalition of whites, a coalition of black voters, and then Hispanic voters. If you knock one of those out, you're in deep trouble across the board with that theory because it is immediately disproved. And that's exactly what's happening here. So to prove this point, where he goes is he looks at the Hispanic voting in the Rio Grande Valley, which is in South Texas. Now, I've talked about this some before, written about it. We have more data now uh, going in, going specifically what happened in across some of these counties as we've got the voter files coming out. And for decades, literally going back to 1960, Democrats reliably scored around 62% of the vote here. And this is, you know, the Rio Grande Valley in South Texas was a Democratic stronghold in all environments. Uh, the first crack in this armor started, we started seeing some of this in 2018 when Democrats performed extremely well, particularly in Texas. You know, people talked about Texas being a purple state. And interestingly enough here, if you look at Beto O'Rourke's numbers, he underperformed in the Rio Grande Valley just by a little bit. But historically, you know, if you're performing around 62% and then you outperform what any other statewide Democrat has ever done in Texas, but you underperform here, that suggests something is happening under the surface because Beto O'Rourke only hits 60% in this this area. Now, I get that that's a small percentage, but you have to remember, Ted Cruz only won by about two or three votes, which was closer than any other Democrat had come in a statewide race. He out, Beto O'Rourke outperformed everyone, but he underperformed right here. So his underperformance here tells us a little bit, even though it's only two points, because it comes back again in 2020. And here's where Sean's analysis come back in here. He says the following. Then came 2020. Trump won 53% of the vote in this region. He won 47% of the vote in Starr County and carried Zabata County with 53% of the vote, becoming the first Republican presidential candidate since Warren Harding, which is back in 1921, to carry the latter county. This performance trickled down the ticket as well. Senator John Cornyn only lost Zapata County by 10 points, and he lost Starr County by 15. Democratic Representative uh, Flamen Vela almost lost his re-election campaign in his 83% Hispanic district. Why? Democrats will point to a lot of things like the lack of Democratic door-knocking campaigns due to the coronavirus and other organizational factors. But turn-up was up substantially here and in other areas of the country. Similarly, while Democratic neglect of the Hispanic vote could have played a role, it seems unlikely to have produced swings this large. Remember, you're talking about Democrats reliably winning in this place by 62%, and all of a sudden they're losing this to Donald Trump by 53%, or it's very close at the 47% range. That's a very large swing. Now, when he goes on, he says, The Occam's razor explanation is that Trump, and perhaps the Republican Party as a whole, simply appealed to these voters in a way that other Republican candidates have not. The reason for this would require a lengthy research project, but hypothesis abound. Counterintuitively, some emphasize Trump's strong stance on border security. After all, voters are all citizens, and some may view illegal immigration differently than white liberals expect. Many Border Patrol agents are, in fact, Hispanic. But it wasn't just the Texas border that saw this swing. Heavily Hispanic areas in Florida, California, Colorado, Illinois, and New York saw substantial increases in Republican performance. So the key takeaway here 
from his analysis that Trump and Republicans are surging in areas with strong Hispanic communities. And it happened in many places, as he pointed out. You've got several states here. He, he lists them off there. You, you know, he, you're talking about Texas, a place in areas of Texas where Republicans have been hurt by Hispanic voters. They're now winning them. But also in places of like Florida, California, Colorado, New York, Illinois, some you know some of these deep blue states and even purple states where you you know Republicans have lost in the past, you're seeing cracks in the armor happening through here. And in Florida, you know, two of the communities that are strongest for Republicans are Cuban voters and Venezuelan voters, two groups who really know socialism and the memory of that socialism, you know, living in it is very strong there because they saw it firsthand. And you have these socialist groups, communist groups in the Democratic Party, and they flatly reject that. They want nothing to do with it. And until the Democrats either recant those beliefs or, you know, the memories of that socialism in Cuba and Venezuela is gone from the peoples who are now moved here. Democrats are going to continue to struggle with those types of groups. You can't. One of the problems that Democrats really do here that really hurts them is that they lump all Hispanics into one category, which is something you just flat out cannot do. You have all these different countries in South America, you have Central America, you have Mexico, you have Cuba, and they all view things differently. They all have different backgrounds. They're all different countries. Things are different. And when you lump them all together and think of them almost the same way, you're committing just a cardinal sin here of not viewing these as individual groups that have to be catered to. Much in the same way, you know, at the turn of the century and the 20th century, you saw different ways to cater to your Irish, uh, the Irish, your Germans, your Scotch-Irish, just the various different groups that made up New England, Midwest, and, and so on and so forth. You have to approach them differently because they are distinct groups. And there's been a mistake made here, it's not just by German Democrats, everyone sort of has lumped Hispanic voters all into the same bucket, but you have to view them as distinct entities, because they view the world differently depending on their background. Which, when you think about it intuitively, that should make some sense, because people have different backgrounds. If you're in from a different geographic area of the United States, you're going to be different from other geographic areas. I'm from the South. I'm different from the New England, which is different from the Midwest, Pacific Northwest, middle of the country, California, you know, just this whole nine yards here. Geographic differences matter, and you can't just lump in people into these broad sweeping categories and pretend that it matters. So... I'm going to link his piece in the notes. I highly advise it if you want to dig more into some of the specific numbers. It's really great. He he has some maps and stuff, which are great to go through. Uh, and I think his conclusions and the lessons learned are sound. Uh, but I want to bounce over here, though, to the another piece. And I mentioned it at the top, and this one's by Josh Crashauer at National Journal. And the reason I want to do that is because he's looking at the other side of this. He's looking at the Democratic side of sort of the same equation here. So... With the first piece, we were looking at Trump and Republicans, but Josh, he's looking at the New York City mayoral race and Joe Biden and what progressives and Democrats need to learn from both that mayoral race and from Biden's victory. So the New York City mayoral race dominated social media just because that's the biggest city in the country. That's where all the media headquarters are. So if you're on social media of any kind, you saw people talking about this this thing, particularly Twitter. That was where people were talking about it the most. There were some funny things that came out of it. It made viral moments. Andrew Yang was involved. So there was just a whole deal here. But the key to that race is who won. And that's a man named Eric Adams, a guy who was 
dead last in all the talk on social media, but the guy who raced to the front of the race, you know, front of everything, once votes were actually counted. And he ran mostly as a moderate uh, Democrat in this race, specifically talking about fixing things like crime and sending police into communities that needed to end crime. So he was running on the exact opposite platform of some of these others who were talking about, you know, you know, defund the police and all that sort of thing. He's in the exact opposite camp here. He's running in a moderate category here. He basically ran an anti-progressive campaign. After winning, you know, he even had a, this incredible line here that People should just have seared into their brains. He, he said, you know, social media is doesn't choose a mayor. People who get social security checks do. That is a great line. It's very similar, and, you know, it's, it's old school, but it's similar to the one you would find from uh, the former Democratic Speaker of the House, Tip O'Neill, who popularized the phrase, all politics is local. And that's true. It is. You have to appeal to your own voters in your own city. You can't run a national social media race. You can't run these national races. If you're nationalizing a race, that means that you have convinced the voters in a local race that a national issue matters to them. That can sometimes matter, but it still means that your politics are local. So I think this is more important ever in an era where social media can dominate a race. And Josh Kroshauer, he was watching these dynamics play out, and he wrote the following. This column was about Joe Biden, but I want you to keep in mind here, as we go through some of his points here, think back through what we just went through with the Hispanic voters and how they are changing and leaving Democrats behind. Potentially, anyway. So here's what he writes. He says, President Biden had an important opportunity this week to lead his party back to a productive political path by calling out the Democrats' progressive excesses. Speaking on the issue of rising crime and holding the cards to cut a bipartisan deal on infrastructure, he could have publicly broken away from the radical defund the police crowd and challenged voices in his own party who oppose any compromise on spending legislation. In short, he needed a, quote, malarkey moment. A time for a plain-spoken Joe to utter some obvious political truths about the mood of the country and challenge the illusions of the left. It was an essential part of his winning presidential primary campaign, and it's exactly what Eric Adams did in his seemingly successful campaign for the mayor of New York City. The former police captain and Brooklyn Borough president denounced progressive sloganeering throughout his campaign and promised to expand the police presence within the recently crime-ridden city. Biden, on the other hand, scheduled a speech to address the growing crime rate throughout the nation's largest cities, a growing vulnerability for Democrats. It was a moment where the president could have confronted the uncomfortable realities on the left, just like Adams did during his mayoral campaign. Biden could have challenged his base to stop stereotyping police, given the crushingly low morale of officers and the resulting wave of resignations and retirements that many urban police forces face. Biden could have taken on New York City's recently implemented bail reform law, which has allowed violent criminals to roam the streets, committing repeat offenses. He could have challenged the approach of progressive district attorneys who have declined to prosecute many of the lower-level crimes amid a rising rates of violence crime across their cities. Adams ran on these tough-on-crime messages throughout his campaign, repeating the slogan, quote, the prerequisite for prosperity is public safety. Again, that is an excellent line. He's a good candidate. Instead, Biden gave a disengaged speech focused on the well-worn issue of gun control, one that didn't match the urgency of the the political moment. 
It was the type of address that could have been given anywhere at any time. After Biden touted an assaults weapons ban in his speech, Eric Adams responded that the violent crime in his city was committed with handguns, not assault weapons. And if you didn't see it, as an aside here, this is the, the speech where, where Joe Biden was talking about needing people needing F-15s, and you know the American you couldn't overthrow the American government with AR-15s. You need nukes and, and F-15s, which kind of dumbly applies that the American military would start killing American citizens. Which, if that's going to happen, you don't exactly want to be unarmed. So this was one of those situations where Biden just gaffed all over the place and on the cameras and did not make the point anywhere near what he thought he was going to be making here. And as Krushauer points out here, he, <laughs> Eric Adams is, is right here. You've got to have public safety down. The issue here is not an assault, you know, assault weapons or an assault weapon ban. The issue is crime, and you've got to go after it that way, not talking about gun control. He continues here, though. On the economic front, Biden looks like he's blowing a bipartisan opportunity that was gifted to him by a handful of moderate Republican and Democratic senators looking to cut a deal with the White House on infrastructure. Upon reaching the compromise, he revealed in the hard-earned victory proving, or he reveled in the hard-earned victory, proving he was able to live up to his promise of getting Republicans and Democrats to work together. But hours later, he declared that he wouldn't sign the compromise legislation unless another trillion-dollar social spending package championed by Bernie Sanders is passed along party lines at the same time. Which, as anyone with a brain knows, is not going to happen. He ended up walking back the veto threat in an unusual Saturday afternoon statement, saying that it was, quote, certainly not his intent to scuttle the very deal he helped negotiate, but he was merely saying out loud what the left-wingers in his party had already been publicly urging. Again, Biden is showing that he's been held hostage by his party's progressive faction, rather than demonstrating his own political muscle to accomplish what he campaigned on. And with that poison pill attached, the odds of getting the infrastructure compromised through Congress are now significantly lower. And Biden made it harder for his own party's moderates to exert leverage on on restraining the level of spending in the social welfare legislation, given that it's now tied to the success of the infrastructure compromise they negotiated. The week ended with a small but revealing example of how badly the Biden administration staff is misreading their own voters. In a Thursday speech promoting his administration's COVID-19 vaccination efforts, he referenced the lagging pace of vaccinations among Hispanics, but referred to them as, quote, Latinx, an academic gender-neutral label that is hardly ever used by the community he was referring to. Only 3% of Hispanics use the term, and 76% have never heard of it, according to a recent Pew Research Center poll. For a president that has urged his staff to use language that typical Americans can understand, it was a telling blunder. It's a sign that ideology has overwhelmed pragmatism within the White House against Biden's own self-interest. At his celebratory election party, Eric Adams unveiled a soundbite that should be posted on the offices of the Biden White House. Quote, social media does not pick a candidate. People on social security pick the candidate. Given Adam's success on running a moderate message in a deep blue city in Tuesday's election, it would be logical to expect Biden to take a cue from the New York results. Instead, the president is showing he's either unable or unwilling to confront the most extreme voices from within. Okay, so that was a lot, but it was one of those where every word of it is so good and it blends so well 
with the you know the analysis we were doing before on Hispanics because we're seeing two things happen here. Despite Democrats winning in 2020, there's a shift underneath all these numbers of non-white working class voters moving away from Democrats or at least moving towards more moderate Democrats. I think Eric Adams here sort of signifies that. Even even Joe Biden's victory in the primary campaign, that signals that you know, in Biden's case, he explicitly won on on the force of black voters in South Carolina. They gave him the nomination there, and they looked at the rest of the field. They could have chosen a more radical person, but they looked at Biden and went with him. They went with the more moderate person. This has happened again in New York City, where you have the more moderate candidate in Eric Adams, the guy who's talking about actual policing things and addressing crime, which is not what the rest of the Democratic Party is talking about. You know, he's running in a city where you have somebody like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez living, and she's not talking like this. She's disconnected with their own city here. And so you have this move here underneath the surface here where white liberals who are on social media are saying one thing, and that's what the Biden White House is looking at, whereas everybody else is wanting something else. There was some analysis along these lines of the the type of person who is on on Twitter. And so if you just did a, a representation of all the people on Twitter and who's doing the most posts, who is the most interactive, it's the most liberal block of voters you could ever find. If Twitter was its own stage, its own state, it would be on par with a with a with a state like Vermont because it's it's literally like 40 plus points to the left of the average person in the United States. You know, and Vermont gives us Senator Bernie Sanders. So you're talking way far to the left here. And, and I know I say this as a person who's on there and uses it to find information, but it is not representative of anything, anything at all. But it is representative of things like national journalists and the national mood of all these crazy far leftist people. They are the ones who use it, and they push these messages. They're pushing all these different media campaigns that everyone hates seeing, by the way. And in the process, they're pushing Hispanic voters. I think you're even seeing this some with black voters. They're pushing them into the arms of more moderate candidates, which is good, I think, for the country because it means you're not dealing with this, these insane people over here on the far left. But it also, I think, boosts long-term prospects of Republicans here because you're seeing this, you know, in the Rio Grande Valley, you're seeing in Hispanic communities, even in New York, where people or a person like Donald Trump is running better than, you know, even a Joe Biden. So when Biden ran his campaign, he was mostly ignoring these types. But while he's governing, his, his administration is listening to them. So I, that is a telling thing here. This is a very inept administration because they don't understand why they want. They do not understand at all why they want. And I think you can see with the media, they don't understand this either because we're seeing this similar dynamic here where they're constantly pestering the moderate Democrats, people like Joe Manchin, Kristen Sinema, and others about the filibuster because they really want to shove through a far left agenda. And they don't seem to realize that no one wants that. There was this big blow up over the the, the SR1 slash HR1, the big election bill that the far left wanted to pass and they were ready to get rid of the filibuster in order to pass it. Everyone talked about Joe Manchin. But the thing is, if you actually looked at those votes, and I've written about this, if you looked at the votes, looked at the filibuster, and looked at the people who were talking about it, 
I don't know if that bill could have gotten 45 votes in the Senate. There are a lot of people who are using that filibuster to hide in order to avoid taking a hard vote on a bill they know is bad and they know would hurt them. And that's a lot of what is happening there. So I think if you take all these things together and you're looking forward to 2022 and 2024, there's no sign that the progressive left has learned a single lesson from all this. And so the more they push here, the more room it gives Republicans to gain ground here. You know, you've got Hispanic voters heading over in various parts of the country. You could probably expand on that if you're looking at these midterm elections. Republicans are going to be favored here. Between that and redistricting, they're going to be looking at retaking the House almost for sure. I mean, you're talking, if if I were putting odds on it right now, I'd say Republicans are at 90% or better odds on retaking the House. The big question is just the Senate, which is 50-50 right now. you got to rewin one of those Georgia seats most likely, and then you got to snipe off one of these other places like a New Hampshire. So... That's what you're looking at there. So it's 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 a hard map, but Democrats are running on the wrong message, and they're endangering their moderate crowd by pushing all these hard messages. And we see this. There was this big blow-up right after the election that the moderates in the Democratic Party were blasting the defund the police segment of the party, saying they are the reasons that we're losing some of these races, and it's the reason that we only have a five-vote majority in the House. These are all big things that are being talked about by Democrats themselves, by specifically the moderates. And so that's going to matter. It's going to matter a lot. And I think the other thing that's going to you know, play in here, and I know I've written a ton about this in the newsletter and in my columns, you can't discount the impact, the impact of inflation. You've got to factor that in as well. And if people start looking at all these different big spending plans and saying, well, this is causing inflation to go up, they're going to look at Democrats and say, why are you doing this? This is all bad. So I think that's the dynamics that we're looking at. And we're going to take a quick break here. When we get back, we'll talk COVID-19 updates and then head into the line item segment. So as usual, we're going to hit some of the key metrics on the COVID-19 front this week. Uh, I'm dropping a few things. I'm just not bothering to track anymore because I don't really care. I don't think it matters, and that's going to be the testing this week. We're just going to hit the main metrics. So um, on the test, the positivity rate remains low. We're sitting at just under 2% on all the tests. We're sitting at 1.9% on the COVID-19 front. So there's been some ups and downs in these numbers, but I think that's more related to all these holidays we've had over the weekend here. The last one was Father's Day. We've got July 4th coming up. So I think you're seeing some variations where more data can be dumped in one day that can make things look like they go up. Uh, there's no real trend line that suggests things are going up. We're, we're still going down and 1.9% is right at the lowest point that we've ever been on this. So I think that number is great. Of course, the lower positivity rate translate into lower cases. Right now, the seven-day average on new cases sits at 11.5 11, uh, 11. thousand or 11,500. Uh, that is a number that is also continuing to drop here. It's dropping slower, but we, you know, you're only talking about 1,500 away from dropping below the 10,000 mark. And that is astounding. I mean, there have been days where you had, I mean, you know, here in Tennessee, there are days where 11,000 cases, that could come in one day here. So nationally, you're talking nationally here, where a little over 11,000 are coming in on an average day. That is an astounding number. And it's also a good sign that things are continuing to drop and we're doing fine. 
Um, hospitalizations also continue to fall. Two weeks ago, we were talking about dropping below 15,000 active hospitalizations. Right now, there's a little over 12,000 active hospitalizations, um, 12,300 and change to be exact. So those numbers are good, too. So the reason, you know, you hear some people say, well, you know, we're just not testing enough. There's more cases out there. We're just not testing enough. Well, that's not supported by things like hospitalizations. If there were more active cases that were a danger to society, they would show up in hospitalizations. That is not happening. So thing, that's why, I, you know, I'm leaning into the other two numbers because they are everything suggests that we're on the right track. And along with that are the deaths numbers, which are continuing to fall. We're now at our new lowest is just below 300 a day at 292. So we are continuing to see all these key metrics drop and go further down. And some of them, you know, they may be a little flat right now, but we've seen that before where you have a few days of flatness and then things continue to trend down. There is literally nothing in any of the data to suggest that things are going to trend up. Of course, that can change. I, you know, that has changed in the past. The problem is that there's just no evidence that that can happen right now. So if it does, you know, I'll note it, but right now it's not happening. So uh, of these numbers, if you look when you're looking at deaths and hospitalizations, we know right now that 99% of all hospitalizations and 99% of deaths are people who have not been vaccinated. So we know vaccines are working because those who are still ending up in the hospital and those who are still dying from this are unvaccinated or have had have not had COVID, and so they have no immunity at all. That's where all your hospitalizations and deaths are coming from at this point. People who are not vaccinated. And the vaccination numbers themselves do continue to go up, so that gives me hope there. We're obviously not averaging anywhere near the pace that we were. This is just the long slog of trying to get as many people as you can. Um, we've administered 323 million vaccination doses across the country. 54% of the total population now has a, at least one dose of the vaccine in them. 63.1% um, of those 12, age 12 years and up have at least one dose. 66% of the adult population has had at least one dose. And 87.6% of those 65 and up, the elderly population, though they have had at least one dose. We are well into, in several of these categories, we're well into early herd immunity via the one-dose category. And when you start factoring in, trying to model, okay, once you start factoring that, you say, okay, well, we know some people have had it too. If you try to sort of model out, you know, your natural immunity plus the people who are now vaccinated, you're probably looking somewhere between 70 to 75% of the population has some level of immunity to this. That's pretty decent there. You know, giving the viral nature, particularly of of the latest variants, I think you, you obviously, it's not going to continue, it's not going to stop spreading just because people have immunity to it. So at this point, you just need to act on the basis that you're going to have an exposure to this thing. Unless you're some kind of, you know, hypochondriac who's walled yourself off to the world, you're going to be exposed to COVID-19 at some point. That's just a, a reality of life. And a mask isn't going to save you for that. You've got to have some level of immunity. Otherwise, you're going to have to deal with it. Your body's going to have your body's immune system is going to have to deal with it, and that's just the end of it. So I know, you know, you're hearing one of the things that's annoying. <clears throat> 
is that if you look at the news coverage, you see all these stories of, well, you know, we have the Delta, or not the Delta variant. Yeah, the Delta variant and the, the it, which is also the Indian variant. You heard everyone talking about the Indian variant and then it shifted to a number. And now they're calling, they changed everything to the Delta variant. It's all very annoying. The Delta and the Indian variant are one and the same. You see all these things talking about, oh, well, this case has surged here. We're seeing the Delta variant surge into this community and that community, and that is true. It is surging. But what is happening is that it's taking over for all the other strains. And we've seen this now a couple times. We saw there was the original strain of COVID-19, which spread. After that, the UK strain was the one that spread and sort of took over everywhere. After that one, you had the South African strain sort of take over for everyone. Now there was one in between there, and now you have this Indian variant or the Delta variant, and it is now surging and taking over all of the other strains. So it is unique in that it is highly contagious and also more lethal than the other strains. It sort of combines the worst of both worlds with the UK strain and the South African strain, from what I can tell. And so you kind of have to account for it as being the worst case that we have so far. So that's why you're seeing people act more scared of this one because there's a legitimate reason to be concerned about it, but it's not showing up in the case numbers or the testing or anything like that. Numbers are still drifting down. They may be flattening out a little bit nationally because you have it going into this is since it's more viral, it can go into some of these unvaccinated communities and spread more easily. But aside from that, it's just taking over for the other strains. So as long as you have that vaccination protection, you're still fine. There's still no sign that any of these has beaten the vaccinations. So at this point, I you know, I don't even know if we're going to I've said multiple times I don't know if we're going to need a booster shot. There's still no sign that we need a booster shot at this point. So it's just a matter of getting people these vaccinations, getting those needles into arms and moving on from there. So at this point, you know, you know, getting COVID-19 without a vaccination is just a choice because you can walk in anywhere and get it. So if that's your choice, fine whatever. I, I don't think it's very smart because you're going to be exposed to this. This is not like flu or anything else on a, you know, a contagious front because it's just literally more contagious than anything else we've ever seen. Because literally you had entire communities and cities shut down and you saw the flu and some of these other, these other diseases, they basically dropped to zero. They couldn't spread. This thing was still spreading. So it's a different animal on this front. Uh, and I've gone through before. I, I think this came from a Chinese lab. There was some more stuff that came out this week about how China had deleted these entries in a, you know, an international registry for different, different, um, not variations, but different ways that they sample these these viral strands, and they had deleted entries, which in, which. Given the timing, would suggest that COVID-19 had broken out even earlier than the Wuhan market incidences, which I also believe happened, which you have those researchers. But this suggested a potentially even earlier outbreak in Wuhan. So I think this came out of that lab. It's obviously not confirmed, but I think you have to treat it as something which they designed to go after human lungs in that in that lab. It's not a bioweapon, but it is something that you have to treat as it was designed to be more to be a worse version of SARS, and you have to treat it as such. That's why I advocate these vaccinations because you don't want to deal with something that was designed in a lab to go after your lungs. So that's my pitch. I've given it before. At this point, you know, people are making that choice, and that's fine. We need to start. At this point, if that's going to be their choice, that's fine, and we just need to start getting our doses out the door to other countries. At this point, I would like to see us moving 
doses to Canada and Mexico to get rid of the threat on our border. And then from there, I would specifically target places that have been using China's vaccination doses just to pop them in the nose and show them that their their entire contribution to this entire pandemic is useless and they are useless. And we need to use that as a foreign policy tool. Because they're the ones who came up with, I think you need to treat it like this. They're the ones who created this mess. They're the ones that let it get loose. They're the ones who lied about it. And, and they're the ones putting out faulty vaccinations. Pop them over and over and over again. I don't know if the Biden administration has that in them, but that is what we need to be doing day in and day out. So that's where we are. I think overall we're in a great place right now with the virus. And that's what we're celebrating as we head into July 4th weekend. And as I said at the top, you know, we're a week away from July 4th as I'm recording. I'm not going to be recording next week because it is July 4th. Um, But I thought I would share a message from former President Ronald Reagan. And he gave a presidential address when America turned 207 about why he loves July 4th. So here is President Reagan talking about why he loves Independence Day. My fellow Americans, on Monday, America will celebrate her 207th birthday. I love the 4th of July. I enjoy picnics and fireworks and long summer days. And I get excited with the thought that millions of our people all across our great country will, on this 4th of July weekend, join together in thinking about freedom and the men and women who sacrificed to make it our inheritance. It's easy to forget just what a revolution these Americans made. It's easy to forget how they amazed the world and how many hopes they raised. President George Washington, the very first inaugural address, warned Americans that they had a new responsibility. He said, The preservation of the sacred fire of liberty and the destiny of the Republican model of government are justly considered, perhaps as deeply as finally, staked on the experiment entrusted to the hands of the American people. Now, you may not think of yourself or our democracy as an experiment, but look around. All over the world, millions and millions of people still live under tyranny. Their leaders claim that they're the wave of the future that history is on their side. And yet their people look to us for hope. Their people look to America as the cradle of freedom, the place where the great civilized ideas of individual liberty, representative government, and the rule of law under God are realities. Yes, these people see America as the experiment that works. And democracy works because of the physical and moral courage of individuals, some famous, others deserving of recognition. I think of a group of women we honored in Washington this past April, an honor long overdue. They were nurses who'd been captured in the Philippines during World War II and then spent nearly three years in prison camps. Lieutenant Colonel Madeline Ulm, who was captured at Corregidor, as described tending wounded soldiers during the long months of siege. Our atmosphere was one of dusty pall, ever-present, in which we moved, worked, tried to eat, tried to breathe in an endless nightmare, she said. In Santa Tomas prison camp, Colonel Ullum and her fellow nurses quickly organized into shifts and began to care for other prisoners. They fought against diseases and starvation. They lacked medicine and equipment and food. But miraculously, every one of the 81 American women POWs had survived. These women would not describe themselves as extraordinary Americans. They simply volunteered to serve their country, and they chose to serve it with courage and hope. Their patriotism, as they gathered in Washington 40 years after their capture and imprisonment, remained strong and vibrant. Of course, we're accustomed to thinking of courage during a time of war. But democracy requires political courage as well. 
1954, when he was convalescing from a painful back operation, Senator John F. Kennedy had time to think about political courage. The result was a book entitled Profiles in Courage, in which he wrote, In the days ahead, only the very courageous will be able to take the hard and unpopular decisions necessary for our survival in the struggle with a powerful enemy. And only the very courageous will be able to keep alive the spirit of individualism and dissent which gave birth to this nation, nourished it as an infant, and carried it through its severest tests upon the attainment of its maturity. We've seen a great example of this kind of political courage just recently, when a majority made up of both Republicans and Democrats in the Congress set aside narrow political considerations and embraced a bipartisan program for enhancing America's security and stability through meaningful arms reductions and modernization of our defenses. It was not easy for many of these men and women to vote for the MX missile. Some have been harshly criticized by other members in their own party. Indeed, they faced considerable pressure and corresponding political risks. While accepting such risks, the only benefit they've received is the knowledge that they placed foremost their hopes for successful arms reductions and greater security of their nation. Together with the Congress, we're doing everything possible to achieve genuine arms reductions. Our negotiators have been given instructions that provide greater flexibility in our negotiations with the Soviet Union. The proposals are fair, realistic, and would bring a much greater degree of stability for all the peoples of the world. There's absolutely no doubt that the prospects for success in our negotiations have been significantly improved because of the political courage shown by the Congress. The task now is to be patient and to sustain our resolve. On this Fourth of July weekend, I salute those members of the Congress who are putting the interests of America first. They're part of a long American tradition of proving democracy's critics wrong, of showing that we have the courage to stand up for what is right and what is necessary. Our democratic experiment is alive and well at year 207, and with the help of the kind of political leadership and vision that we've seen in recent weeks, we can count on many happy returns. Till next week, God bless you and God bless America. Pretty cool message there from the former president of the United States. Hope you enjoyed that, and I hope you have a happy and safe July 4th with you and your family. That's all I've got for today's show. Questions, comments, corrections, or feedback, you can reach out to me in the contact information in the show notes or hit me up on Twitter at DevonCI. Look for my next columns on Monday and Friday at the Conservative Institute and the newsletter goes out early Friday morning, so make sure to sign up before that and you will get the next issue. Thank you for listening to this podcast and making it part of your day. Remember, if you'd like to enjoy it, make sure to send in those five-star reviews to help us out. I hope you tune in again, but until then, I'm your host, Daniel Vaughn, signing off for this week, and I will see you guys in the next episode.